Uh, please open your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 1. We will be looking at verses 15 through 23 tonight. Uh, if being under the tent gets a little brutal, uh, we do have the back music room. Um, it's nice and warm in there, so if it, uh, we have a live stream going on in there, so if it gets a little brutal under the tent, um, we have that available to you. So if it's your first time here, I want to give you my sincerest welcome on behalf of our fellowship here at CC Conejo Valley. Uh, we go verse by verse through the scriptures so that we don't miss the beauty in which the authors wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Whenever I am given the privilege of opening God's word to you recently, I have been in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians, a letter written while he was in Roman house arrest. So we'll be continuing through that portion of scripture tonight. So before we read the text, let's pray. Father in heaven, help us see more of your son tonight. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all the saints said, amen. amen. So Colossians 1, verses 15 through 23, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. So this is Paul writing to the believers in Colossae by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was a father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Verse 21, and although you were formerly alienated, and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly, established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister." This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Back in 2015, world-renowned actor Denzel Washington gave a commencement speech at Dillard University, a speech that has gone supersonic, not viral, supersonic, and is used in many motivational montage videos and clips across the internet. You may recognize it, so here's a quick excerpt of what he told the Dillard graduates on that day. He says, I quote, number one, put God first. Put God first in everything you do. Everything that you think you see in me, everything that I've accomplished, everything that you think I have, and I have a few things, everything that I have is by the grace of God. Understand that. It's a gift. End quote. The moment someone professes faith in Christ, 
They are, bom- they are bombarded with that phrase that echoed through the Dillard campus back in 2015, put God first. This command to keep God first is something that is hammered into the minds of believers from the moment they utter the words, I believe. Because of the repetition, this can certainly breed apathy, a sort of carelessness in the hearts of believers, especially in today's culture, where the same phone company has released over 15 versions of the same phone. We crave something new constantly. So when we're commanded to keep the same God on the same throne day in and day out for the rest of eternity, we as sinful humans seem to grow weary of the ancient faith. Put God first. Such a loaded cliche intended as a reminder to submit to the Lord in all things, but is more often than not just a flippant phrase that keeps you in the driver's seat. You need to put God first. You need to put him in his rightful place. Yet God is first, whether you live like it or not. The precious fact that he is first, no matter what, in turn should then motivate us to live like it. And our task for today is to unpack that reality and how that high and lofty truth descends down from heaven to earth and infiltrates our every corner of our comfortable lives. So a brief context of Colossians. You see, the church of Colossae was having a hard time believing that. That anything that was of God would ever come down from heaven and mingle with the earthly. This is an ancient heresy called Gnosticism, where the spiritual, anything spiritual is considered good and everything physical is considered bad, which is why verses like verse 19 are groundbreaking, and we'll get to that a little later. This group of believers were slipping dangerously into believing that they needed things outside of Christ in order to grow in the knowledge of God and his will. They were essentially saying, Jesus, eh, he's all right. He's just one among many ways to heaven, right? I'm thankful for salvation and all, but in order to truly continue growing and remaining saved, I'm going back to my dietary guidelines and Sabbath observances, if I have a Jewish background, and my pagan worship of angels and visions, if I have a Gentile background. Obviously a big deal. So at the time of the writing of this letter, Epaphras, a native-born Colossian, saved under the preaching of Paul during his three-year ministry in, in Ephesus, mentioned in Acts 19, is with Paul in Rome and has likely shared the bad news that there was a dangerous teaching threatening this church in Colossae. So here's what's at stake. Whether one based their faith on the false teaching or the Lord Jesus Christ which gives the Apostle Paul more than enough reason to write to clarify that Christ is supreme. In good old Apostle Paul fashion, he writes a letter to elaborate on the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. Christ is supreme in our salvation, and he's supreme in our sanctification. Completely sufficient. So because this letter highlights Christ, it's only natural for for Paul to begin with precious gospel truths. In the first eight verses of chapter one, Paul is exploding with gratitude for how much fruit the gospel has sprung up in the Colossian church. 
And it is this evident fruitfulness of the gospel that has provoked Paul and his companions to continuously pray for them to increase in the knowledge of God's will in verses 9 through 14, which leads us to our text for tonight. So if you have, if you have an outline in front of you, let's look at it together. I titled this message, From the Cosmos to Calvary. If you look at the outline, the word preeminent is repeated three times, which is just a $10 word that simply means first. He's first. God the Son is first. In verses 15 through 17, we will see what it means for Jesus to be the first in the cosmos, how he powerfully reigns over the first creation, the heavens and the earth. In verses 18 through 20, we will see what it means for Jesus to be first over the church, how he personally rules over the new creation, redeemed believers. In verses 21 through 23, we'll see what it means for Jesus to be first through the cross of Calvary, how he practically reconciles sinful creation to himself to be like him. So why does this matter specifically in the church of Colossae? Because this church was growing apathetic or careless toward the Son of God. Yet they were still spiritually hungry. Paul recognized this and came to the conclusion that the best medicine for their symptoms of carelessness was to introduce them to the sheer awesomeness of Christ, which is precisely what he does here in our passage for tonight. The cure for apathy is the awesomeness of Christ. The Jews' apathy looked like going back to their dietary guidelines, Sabbath observances. The Gentiles' apathy looked like returning to their pagan worship of idols and visions, both turning from Jesus and running towards people and activities that make them feel alive or in tune with the divine. And the question I'd like for you to think about throughout the message is, what does your apathy look like? What does your carelessness look like? When you're flippant about who the Son of God is, what do you do? What do you say? How do you act? How do you react? What does your failure to recognize who Jesus, who Jesus truly is cause you to do? What about your spiritual hunger? Is it satisfied by the true bread of life or the stones Satan turned into bread? Paul recognizes this threat and by the power of the Holy Spirit paints one of the most elaborate images of the preeminence of our Savior in all of Scripture, from the cosmos to Calvary. So let's start there with verse 15 for point number one. Verse 15 reads, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, before I unpack this verse, let me just say this. The eternal God of the universe is knowable. You don't have to spend another second of your life avoiding the unavoidable. You can know him. He is not just the man upstairs. He's the one who is there if you're a victim of an affair or despair. The creator God who put the stars in the sky is the same creator God who put that twinkle in my daughter's eye. The creator God that Christians claim wrote the laws of nature and reality is the same creator God who crushes your anxiety 
and is near when you experience tragedy. Don't believe those talk show hosts, comedians, political pundits of the day, or even that one uncle who self-righteously claims that God doesn't exist as he sits as a keyboard, keyboard warrior on Facebook most of his afternoons. God is knowable. Just how? It, you might ask. Through his son. So for you note takers, John 1, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1 all describe Jesus as the perfect representation of God exclusively and entirely. Only him and fully him. John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Thirteen verses later, he writes, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of God's nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. You see, all of these authors recognize that to search for the almighty God and find Jesus is mission accomplished. To search for God and find Jesus is mission accomplished. They're just writing about what Jesus himself told them during his earthly ministry. In Matthew 12, Jesus is exchanging words with the scribes and Pharisees and teaches that our words reveal our true character. He says this by saying, out of the overflow of the, how, out of the, overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus tells us that our words expose who and what we are. So in light of that, it is no shock to us that the author of Hebrews opens his letter with, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, God in these last days has spoken to us in his son. The eternal logos, the word of God made flesh, expresses and reveals God. Jesus understood this because John 14 reads, Philip said to him, Lord, Show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Unbelievers don't understand this because Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Jesus is God. Believers should share that. Unbelievers should sh submit to that. Now let's look at two words in verse 15 that are crucial for us. Image, in the Greek it's icon, and firstborn, in the Greek it's uh, prototokos. So icon, where we get the word icon, it means likeness or representation. Nowadays, when we think of musical performance icons, we think of Michael Jackson, the Beatles, Taylor Swift, or Drake, depending on your generation. When we think of sports icons, we think of Michael Jordan, Derek Jeter, LeBron James, depending on your generation. People who embody that particular domain 
Back in the ancient Mediterranean time, though, icons had this royal, authoritative meaning to them. Think of a wax seal and its impression, or a signet ring, or whoever's head was on the currency at the time. This demonstrated royal authority and the citizens' submission to that royal authority, which is key. For example, when they test Jesus about paying taxes in Matthew 22, Jesus says, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed and leaving him and they went away. What I think Jesus meant there was this. If Caesar's image is on the money, it's his prerogative as the royal authority to conform his citizens to his rule. Now here's the kicker. Whose image is on you? If God's image is on humanity, It's his prerogative as the royal authority to conform his citizens, not necessarily to his rule, but to his son. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Church, don't you see? We can know him. If we don't get this, and seek to exchange it for something else, we put ourselves on the broad road to corruption because Romans 1 tells us that professing to be wise, some became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of a corruptible man. So all this to say, Jesus, the royal authority as God in the flesh, conforms us to be like him as his image bearers. Now, the next word, prototokos, firstborn. If we're not intentional to read this verse carefully, we may read this verse like the millions who have fallen into the ancient heresy of Arianism. Arianism is the false teaching that Jesus had a physical origin or was created. Obviously, we know that he was born, but by the miracle of the incarnation, not physical conception. He was not conceived like each one of us, nor was he created by the Father in heaven. He is the eternal Son, the second person of the Trinity, who who took on human form and who was and is, or who was and is and is to come. This verse, this verse is used by the Latter-day Saint community and the Jehovah's Witness community to argue for the creation of Jesus. That Jesus is the first and greatest creation of the Father. And it certainly reads that way. It certainly reads that way, doesn't it? But that is the ancient heresy of Arianism. This term firstborn is not a word that describes one who is literally born first but is used to speak of rank and supremacy. You guys, some of you know Quincy. Quincy and I actually had a conversation 
with a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses who came to our neighborhood recently. A story I'll share more in more detail when I get to verse uh, 19, but I didn't know this true definition of firstborn at the, at the time as scripture presents it, so this is for you. This is for you. This is to prepare you. In legal terms, firstborn is used to speak of the heir entitled to the inheritance, which included the father's power and authority over the household. Well, Chris, if you think firstborn literally doesn't mean born first and instead speaks of rank and supremacy or rank and inheritance, prove it. Prove it. How do you know that that's what the word actually means? Gladly. With Israel and David. In Exodus 4, for you note-takers, Exodus 4, verses 22 to 23, this is God speaking to Moses. He says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, Let my son go so that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. That's speaking about Israel. Psalm 89, verses 27 to 28 this is God speaking of David. He says, I shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My loving kindness I will keep with, for him forever, and my covenant shall be confirmed to him. Now, let me ask you this. Was Israel, formerly known as Jacob, was he born first? No, Esau was. Was David born first? No. He was the youngest of eight brothers. So firstborn cannot mean only you were literally born first. Firstborn is a royal title. Now, why does Paul call Jesus the firstborn of creation? The answer to that question is one of the many things that gives my Christian walk life and a night sky full of fireworks. In Genesis 1, Adam is the firstborn son made in the image of God. He was supposed to be God's royal representative as he inherited the promised land of Eden, but failed. Israel, as the firstborn son, made in the image of God, was supposed to be God's royal representative as they inherited the promised land of Canaan, but failed miserably. Now Jesus, the firstborn only begotten son, image of the invisible God, yet found in the likeness of man, as God's successful royal representative, inherits not just a piece of promised land, but all of creation. Christ was, is, and has always been plan A. He is first. He has to be first. He has to be first so that it may change our behavior because Paul writes letter, uh, later in chapter 3 verses 9 and 10 that resembling God should affect how we treat one another. In chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, 
it reads, do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. By believing in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, you too get to enjoy the status of the privileged firstborn because you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Now my question is, are you acting like it? Whenever you walk into a room or a conversation, do people acknowledge you as a royal representative? Do people watch their language around you? Do you stand uninvited to parties because of the convicting presence you bring? Do they know to come to you when they need to hear about Jesus? That is just a glimpse into royal representation. That's what it looks like and sounds like. Now, why Jesus? Why does he get to be the privileged firstborn? Verse 16, for by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Here's what's at play here. If Christ simply came into existence for the first time on that Christmas day, nothing would exist. Have you thought about that? If we fall into the heresy of Arianism, nothing would exist. If that's what we believed, nothing would exist. When God created the heavens and the earth, the, the eternal son already had dominion over all things. So when Adam was made, so when Adam was made and humans were commanded to have earthly dominion, it was simply a reflection of the son's eternal dominion. This is part of what it means to be made in, in his image. We were always supposed to reflect his character and his likeness. Here's another thing to think about. Every authority, as the passage says, every authority was and is designed for him. If you think about the rulers, authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places that Paul mentions in Ephesians 6, according to this text right here, those were designed by the Son for the Son. He didn't create them as evil, of course. But those entities chose to rebel against God and went against, against their intended purpose, which was to glorify God. Even though there are rebellious rulers and evil authorities, Christ still rules over them. And we see in Colossians 2 that Christ's rule over these powers is related to the Colossians' protection from false teaching. Paul says, this is my paraphrase, Christ is the head over all rule and authority, 
So make sure no one deceives you through their vain philosophies and traditions of men. Now, listen closely, my friends, because Christ, because Christ has this position and has had it from the beginning, we are completely secure. Our meditation on this truth should not only eliminate all of our fear of the unknown, but should give us a boldness that no human could ever motivate us to have. Colossians 2.15 says that he, speaking of Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing them, triumphing over them in him. It's not God and his teaching versus Satan and his teaching. Christ is head over all rule and authority. So when Paul writes, all things have been created by him and for him, he's telling us that Christ has, has designed the universe in such a way that he himself is the goal of it. He is the goal of his own creation. In him, all things were created to find their fulfillment. This man who was nailed to a tree, crucified as a criminal, is actually the culminating purpose of all of creation. You think about how scandalous that is. The creator of the universe crucified by his own creation. Do you understand now what hangs in the balance when we unapologetically disagree with the LDS church or the Jehovah's Witnesses teaching on who Christ is? Sometimes during our conversations, we may feel like we're splitting hairs, but if I'm being honest, I'd rather split hairs than split atoms. Here's why I say that. If you guys know what the splitting of an atom does, you'll understand why I say that. Verse 17 says, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Think about this with me for a moment. If Jesus is removed from history, like all of history, the first thing we think about is how the path to salvation would revert back to, sacrificial, to the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, right? We have no salvation if we remove Jesus. The way we read our Bibles logically leads us to that thought first. Personal opinion. That's the easy thought. But I think this passage is telling us much more than that. I think this passage is telling us that if Jesus is removed, nothing will be held together anymore. Gravity would fold into itself. Atoms would split. Our entire bodies would disintegrate into millions of particles, which would also waste away into nothing. There are realities in creation that are both visible and invisible to the naked eye, as Paul tells us in verse 16. And he goes on to tell us that it is through Christ in which all of those things remain together. Hebrews 1 verse 3 tells us that he upholds all things by the word of his power. Meaning that right now, where you sit, 
Jesus is preventing everything, everything from disintegrating into a chaotic mess. He's literally holding everything together. That phrase, he is before all things, explains the divinity of Christ. And the phrase, all things hold together, explains the sustaining ability of Christ. He created it. So like a father who is the head of the household is responsible for holding it together. You remove the father out of the home, it's chaos. Now I know what probably came to mind when I, when I explained that. You may be thinking, wait a minute, Chris, that kind of sounds like panentheism. How is it not? If you're unaware, panentheism is the belief that God is in everything. Not to be confused with pantheism, which says everything is God, but that God is in everything. Paul is not at all claiming that God is in everything by saying in Christ all things hold together, but that all creation is subject to him. Now we know that through scientific observations, that things are literally held together by protons and electrons formed in specific sequences, but those elements only function according to the way that they were designed by Christ, by the creator. So in other words, Jesus, as the creator, holds everything together because outside of him and his design, those things wouldn't exist. All creation points to finds its fulfillment in and is held together by the Son of God. And the nature of our worship, the nature of our worship, church, should correspond to his nature as king. As the Dutch theologian Abraham Cooper says, I quote, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Just imagine the weight these statements carry in the hearts of the Colossians. To the people who were going back to their magic and cultic practices, worship of angels, and hanging their hats on their visions in order to feel closer to God, what would these words what would these words have done to their egos? What do they do to ours? To a people who love theatrics, who love gossip, those who compromise their character for the limelight, those who sit on the sidelines waiting for others to serve in their place, what does Christ, being the fulfillment of all of creation, the cosmos, do to us. Knowing that he powerfully reigns over the first creation, the heavens and the earth, as we have observed in point number one, naturally informs us on how he personally rules over the new creation, the church, aka redeemed believers. Point number two, Jesus is preeminent or first over the church. Verse 18 he is also head of the body, the church, 
and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So point number one speaks of Jesus over the first creation, which is the universe. And for point number two, we will cover how Jesus is over the new creation, all those in Christ. I, tied, I, I mentioned new creation because this is referring to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17, where he writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Here's why I think it's important. These two points are ordered one after the other, the first creation and the new creation. As sure, as sure as you think the fabric of nature will continue because of Jesus is the assurance you should have in the church prevailing because of Jesus. So in the same way, you have no question as to whether gravity will exist tomorrow is the same assurance that you should have in the church prevailing. In other words, if Jesus is the authority and sustaining power of the universe, then he has every right to be the authority and sustaining power of the church. Paul masterfully unpacks this idea in what is considered an early church hymn to showcase that if Jesus do not does not have full authority over the universe, then he cannot, he cannot have full authority over the church. Paul then introduces this metaphor of the body to communicate that Jesus directs both the development and growth of it. Paul writes elsewhere in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 15 through 16, he says, But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From hump, for, for, verse 16, From him the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament promotes growth of the body for building itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. So each individual part, each individual part of the body is brilliant, brilliantly orchestrated by the risen Lord Jesus to form it and fill it in order to accomplish his purposes. When I was in senior in college, I had an internship at a cardiac rehab center back in Colorado where people came in for a 12-week exercise program to recover from a surgery or serious diagnosis that pertained to their heart or lungs. Open heart surgery, heart or lung transplants, single, double, triple bypasses, COPD, lung cancer, etc. Anything that had to do with one's damaged heart or lung system we saw. We prescribed and walked through exercise programs with these individuals who I got to know for 12 weeks, and I learned a lot. But two things stand out. The first thing, the older you get, the more stubborn you become with physical exercise. I thought, if you guys don't know, um, I teach here at Hillcrest. Uh, I teach uh, Spanish to the high schoolers, and then I have the middle schoolers for Bible, Genesis through Judges, and I have them for PE. I thought having middle schoolers 
run a lap without walking was tough. But to get a man who smoked for 30 years to walk 20 yards without stopping to catch his breath was like pulling teeth. I loved, I loved my patients though. And teaching them about their condition was heartbreaking. But I had many divine appointments with them, so it was, it was actually all worth it. The second thing was that the way the heart and lungs work together was and is truly an absolute masterpiece. I had once observed my supervisor give a lecture to these 60, 70-year-olds about how their heart and lungs work together and how, the, how, and how your heart has chambers that receive deoxygenated blood from your body and send it back to your lungs to be oxygenated and then go back to your heart to be dispersed to the rest of your body And the more you exercise, the smoother that whole process becomes so that your joints and muscles and organs function properly and you breathe more clearly, and so on and so forth. Now, I confuse you with all of that to say this. Number one, our stubborn obedience or our our stubborn disobedience to the headship of Christ stunts our growth and development. Number two, The body is an intricate organism that has to work and was designed to work together for its flourishing as it listens to the head, Christ. The same way the liver cleans your blood to make it habitable for the oxygen the lungs provide is the same way that your service makes someone else's burden more bearable. In other words, your sacrifices as servants of the most high God pave the way for others to flourish. Do we look at service that way? And that leads us to our next phrase. Look again at verse 18 with me. Paul describes Jesus as the firstborn from the dead. So earlier we covered how the phrase firstborn is a royal term, speaking of rank or supremacy. But verse 15 says, firstborn of creation, and here we read, firstborn from the dead. Obviously, Paul is highlighting Christ's royal supremacy by calling him the firstborn twice. But what's the difference between these two phrases? Firstborn of creation means that Christ, as the rightful heir, inherits everything and is worthy of it. That's what firstborn of creation means. Firstborn from the dead means that Christ provides the model for the resurrection of all believers. What I mean by that is his resurrection was the first of its kind. If Christ does not resurrect, we don't either. His resurrection opened the door for our future resurrection. This is what it means for Christ to be the firstborn from the dead. And Paul explains this in beautiful detail in 1 Corinthians 15. He writes in verse 20, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, 
And by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. In that passage in 1 Corinthians 15, although Paul says first fruits instead of firstborn from the dead, it means something similar. The first fruits of a harvest were the first fruits that sprung up for the season that let you know as the farmer, as the harvester, what type of, se- what type of season you were going to have. So Paul essentially says, yes, Christ's resurrection lets us know what type, of re- what type of resurrection we are going to have. And that is what? What type of resurrection? A victorious one. Never to taste the sting of sin and death ever again. This is how vast This is how vast the reign of King Jesus is. Jesus rules everything in this present time because he's the firstborn of creation. And he rules everything in the age to come because he's the firstborn from the dead. I'll say that again. Jesus rules everything this present time because he's the firstborn of creation And he rules everything in the age to come because he's the firstborn from the dead. That is how all-encompassing his reign is as king. How precious, how precious is that? That, church, is the God we serve. His reign is this cosmic so that he can have first place in everything, as verse 18 goes on to say. Now hear me, family. Christ does not have dominion over just the high and lofty things, but also desires and deserves to sit on the thrones of our individual hearts. Now, how is that possible? A.W. Tozer says this about that very idea. He says, in every Christian's heart, There is a cross and a throne. And the Christian is on the throne till he puts himself on the cross. End quote. The cross will never be an instrument of rest until it becomes an instrument of death. As author Elisa Childers writes, the death of our old selves and our sinful desires. And get this, his relationship with the universe is different than his relationship with the church. He is not one with nature, but he is one with the church. When the Apostle Paul, formerly known as Saul of Tarsus, is on his way to persecute Christians, Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Those words teach us that Jesus identifies himself personally with his followers. The true fulfillment of Emmanuel, God with us. Now, how exactly is that possible? Verse 19, let's look at it together. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. That word fullness in the Greek is pleroma, which essentially means everything that makes God, God. 
To the Gnostic mind, which included much of Paul's audience, this was incredibly scandalous because anything fully divine would never willingly, let alone joyfully, inhabit earthly flesh. It was unheard of. This verse is identical to what Paul says a little later in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. He writes, In him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So to say that all the divine fullness dwells in Jesus is to say that he is fully God. And it was this particular verse that I clung to during Quincy and I's conversation with the Jehovah's Witnesses that visited our neighborhood a couple months ago. Such a God thing. So after exchanging passages for a while, the nature of Christ came up. Because if, you, if you're not aware, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus was the first creation of the Father, and then everything else was made through Jesus. So essentially, the Father, the only thing that he created was the Son, and then through the Son, everything else was created. So I brought up this verse right here, verse 19, and asked him if he could explain to me what it means for the fullness of the Father to dwell in Jesus. And he said, humbly, which I respected, he said, I actually don't know. I don't have an answer for you. And so I said, I said, well, Renee, I would be more than willing to hear you out further, but I can't get past this verse. So if you don't have an answer for me, I think we should table this conversation for another time. And he said, okay. I'll come back next week with an answer. I didn't think he would, but guess what? He did. He did. We saw him coming and we're like, Bam. I was like, I saw him coming. We, we kind of live in a cul-de-sac, so, uh, and we have three big windows in our living room. And we usually have the, 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 the blinds up during the day. So when I recognize him coming, I looked at my wife and I'm like, babe, look, look, they're coming. They came back. And as expected, he came back with a different gentleman. And to answer my question, they gave me an analogy that went like this. Imagine a father starting a really successful business, but then he decides to retire and gives it all over to his son. His son then acts as the new authority. Makes sense, right? But I think they missed my point. And they proved it using their own analogy. If the son has the same authority the father has, doesn't that make him of the same nature? Just different persons. That is our teaching of the Trinity. Wasn't arguing anything else. He brought that up. He brought up that analogy and actually proved my point. If God, if God is the only one who can forgive sins and receive worship, and Jesus does both in the New Testament, doesn't that make him God? 
Why else would the, the, the Pharisees want to kill him and, and claim that he was committing blasphemy? That's one of the questions I like to ask people who, don't, who, necessary, who aren't religious, but are who, who are from the LDS community or the, or the Jehovah's Witness community, is why did they want to kill him? They wanted to kill him for a specific reason because he was claiming to be God. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And they sought to kill him. Why? Because he claimed to be God. He didn't say, I am God, but in the Jewish mind, that's he might as well have said that. Before Abraham was, I am. So the question I brought up to him, doesn't that make him God? Now that question wasn't the one to send them away. It was actually me not knowing the definition of firstborn, as I explained earlier. So I said, so going back to, to our conversation about firstborn, I said, you know what? We're just going to have to agree to disagree on the definition of firstborn, because I didn't know. So because I didn't know, but now you do, you're now more prepared than I was. And then we moved on to this fullness, the fullness of God conversation. And then they said the same thing I did. Instead of, instead of answering my question, they said, well, like you said earlier, Chris, we're just going to have to dis agree to disagree. And in my head, I was like, no, answer the question, please. Answer the question, I want to know. So this verse and verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2 remind us of how God chose to dwell in specific places throughout the whole Old Testament and into the New. The tabernacle, the temple, the person of Jesus, and then God the Holy Spirit in believers. Jesus is God. God the Son fulfilled the role of the tabernacle and temple where the full presence of God resided on earth, and now the Spirit of Jesus continues his earthly presence in the church. I am not surprised that the Father took pleasure in this because it's such a brilliant plan. Paul goes on in verse 20 to bring up another thing that the Father took pleasure in. Verse 20, and through him, Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now, you may have had the question as to why it all had to be this way. Why Adam and Eve? Why the need for a sacrifice? Why only Jesus? Why is this the solution to our story? Here's why. Listen closely. Because a human created a divine problem. Therefore, we needed a divine human to solve that problem. A human created a divine problem. Therefore, we needed a divine human to solve that problem. This is Paul's argument. This is why it all had to be this way. This is why the heirs of the first Adam are solved and culminated in the last or the second Adam. 
To reconcile in the Greek means to restore harmony between two parties that were once at odds with each other. It's this change from a hostile attitude to a harmonious one. Now, if we don't read this verse carefully as well, we may assume that everyone will be saved. Well, if Paul says that through Jesus, all things will be reconciled, and all means all, then I'm good, right, Chris? I can keep living the way that I am, and eventually I will be reconciled to God. I can worry about that later. Yet that's not what's being said here. Paul's not teaching universalism that all will be saved, but about true and peaceful order being restored in all creation. God will execute perfect judgment. Evil will be put in its proper place. Rebellion will end and all will be as it should. The primary means by which this is accomplished is through the most violent act in human history, the murder of the Son of God. The cross bridges cosmic and human history. And the best part of it is that it points to our future. An instrument of death actually gives us the most hope. In Randy Alcorn's giant volume on heaven, he writes this on page 95. He says, God has his hand on the earth. He will not let go even when it requires that his hands be pierced by nails. Both his incarnation and those nails secured him to earth and its eternal future. In a redemptive work far larger than most imagine, Christ bought and paid for our future and the earth's. End quote. Christianity is not just a bunch of Jesus freaks calling sinners to repentance. It's a hope-filled, hyper-focused, hyper-focused on the completion of all things by the creator of all things. That's what Christianity is. Randy Alcorn writes elsewhere in his book, he says, heaven is God's home. Earth is our home. Christ Jesus as the God-man forever links God and mankind and thereby forever links heaven and earth. End quote. Christ has begun to restore the disorder, disharmony, and lack of peace in the cosmos and within the church and he does this through his work on Calvary and the proclamation of the gospel for the purpose of what Paul writes in the next couple of verses of our third and last point. Point number three, Jesus is preeminent through Calvary. Verse 21 and 22 read, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Verse 21. Verse 21 describes this all-encompassing opposition to God. Before we come to Christ, we really can't stand him. 
alienated, alienated, hostile, and evil. Being alienated, alienated tells us that we are unwelcome strangers, unfit and excluded from the life of God. We do not belong where he dwells. Hostile in mind tells us that we have this hateful disposition towards him. Before we come to Christ, when we thought of him, we scoffed, we mocked, and blatantly chose other less important things to keep us occupied. Engaged in evil deeds tells us that outside of Christ, our, our alienation and hostility always manifests itself outwardly. Ephesians 4 also has a pretty descriptive list of who we are outside of Christ. Paul writes about being ignorant, foolish in mind, having a darkened understanding, having a hardened heart as a result of desiring sensual pleasures for the purpose of enjoying your greed and impurity in the dark. Now you may reject that and say, stop it, Chris, that ain't me. That's not me, that couldn't be me. But when you have a broken heart or you've been humiliated in some way, we react in such punitive ways sometimes. We get this attitude of, and I've seen this recently from a, from a middle schooler and someone in their 50s, so it isn't just for one isolated group. This attitude of, I want you to feel what I feel. I want you to hurt like I hurt. The goal then is to inflict punishment in such a vengeful way. As fathers, we do this to our children. As husbands, we do this to our wives. As children, we do this to our parents. You ever walk away from an argument having won it, yet you still walk away with that sunken feeling in your chest thinking, why in the world did I say that? I knew, I knew it was all going to be over as soon as those words left my mouth. So why did I? For the believer, it's a choice to daily die to self. I love what Jackie Hill Perry says about this choice. She says, I quote, we will want and choose to put to death what is earthly in us when we believe God is infinitely better than everything we are tempted to leave him for. Close quote. Those actions and reactions are an expression of verse 21. If you don't know Jesus, that's your daily life. If you know Jesus, that's the flesh you have to daily crucify. And speaking of crucifixion, thank the good Lord in heaven for verse 22. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. The Gnostics despised the idea of earthly things, like the human body, doing anything positive for us in the spiritual realm. So for Paul to say that it was exactly that that made it possible for us to enjoy a relationship with God in heaven for eternity was revolutionary. Now, if you read closely, we can see that what Paul writes in verse 22 reverses everything he just described in verse 21 
through the cross. Alienated, holy. Hostile in mind, blameless. Evil deeds, beyond reproach. Once you were an unwelcome stranger to his dwelling place, now you're set apart to represent him. Once you had a hateful attitude towards God, now you have a refined heart, speech, and mind to honor him. Once you were engaged in evil deeds, now you stand no longer accusable for your sins. All because of the work accomplished on the fateful hill of Calvary. The terms holy, blameless, beyond reproach were words used by the priests to describe the animals that, would, that they would bring for inspection to sacrifice in the temple. Now to the modern ear, seeing those same words being applied to us sounds morbid. But only if you remove yourself from what the Old Testament was pointing to. You see, the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus was holy, blameless, and beyond reproach first before we ever could be. Now, does that sound like someone who deserved to be slaughtered like an animal on a cross? So what would motivate someone to do that for the same people who put him there? You know the answer. Love. How else could enemies be made friends, dead people made alive, alcoholics made sober, adulterers made faithful, liars not only made truth tellers, but truth proclaimers? I'll tell you how. The Son of God killed on Calvary. A.W. Tozer writes this, Every ransomed man owes his salvation to the fact that during the days of his sinning, God kept the door of mercy open by refusing to accept any of his evil acts as final. End quote. Verses 21 to 22 seem to describe this sort of spiritual death to life expressed in action. Made available if and only if we cling to the one who accomplished it for us. Our last verse, verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Paul makes evident what we all need to realize, and that is this. The Christian life involves a daily decision of the death of the flesh. Every waking moment, we are at a crossroads. As like Pastor Dave says, fellowship or rebellion, choose one. That is daily. To the Colossians, he charges them to continue trusting in Christ, leaving behind the false teachings that are currently being, that, that are currently being threatened, threatened of returning to. Paul wants them and us to remember that faith in Jesus isn't just the doorway to God's kingdom. It is the way of life in the kingdom. And that doesn't mean just scraping by by the skin of your teeth. Paul uses architectural terms, firmly established and steadfast. 
Better translated as, with your foundation established and your structure immovable. Now, my question to you is, is that how you would describe your faith? Now, if your answer to that question is something like, absolutely, Chris, my prayer life is as personal as Moses speaking to face-to-face to God. My Bible reading is like excavating the depths of the earth and finding, and finding precious jewels. And I'm destroying every argument and lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, taking every thought captive against the Son of God. That's true. To that, I say, amen, praise God, hallelujah. But... Are you hopeful? Paul says, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. What is the hope of the gospel? The answer to, your, to, the answer to that question has to have the power to keep you immovable and firmly planted in your faith. That's what it has to be. So in light of that, what is it? In my opinion, the hope of the gospel is union with Christ, sharing in his resurrection at the end of the age, knowing that one day we will be perfectly conformed to the image of God's son and are actively being shaped and molded into his likeness is our hope. Paul says in verse 23 that this gospel was proclaimed in all creation under heaven. So when Paul's writing this letter, the gospel had not reached the rest of the world. So what did Paul mean? Paul's not saying that the gospel has been made known to everyone, but that it can be for everyone. It's so explosive and monumental that it should be proclaimed to every corner of the world. And this this telling of good news will continue for all eternity. And I love, I love what Adam Ramsey says about this, about that very idea. He says this, there is, there is coming a day where our gospel will no longer be news we announce, but a song that we sing and a story that we retell. My dear brothers and sisters, we are, entr- we are entrusted, as Paul was, with the carrying of a saving message on our lips while we are surrounded by the threats. Does that truly mean something to us, this side of glory? Paul makes the effort to make sure that the Colossians know that the same gospel their pastor Epaphras preached to them is the same gospel he was made a minister of. This is important because the false teachers were beginning to gain a following in the area. So Paul's like, wait, wait, wait. Just because Epaphras is not with you doesn't mean you should start believing these destructive heresies. Me and your beloved pastor carry the same message. The exhortation here in verse 23 to remain steadfast and hopeful reminds me of the parable Jesus gave about the two foundations, building on the rock or building on the sand. You remember that one? In Matthew 7, Jesus, like, Jesus says, everyone who hears my words and acts on them builds his house on the rock. And everyone who hears my words and does not act on them 
builds his house on sand. Listen closely. That passage tells us that both houses were hit by the rain and wind. Now, here's why I make note of that, and I believe it's Jesus' heart as well. I personally, I want to invite you to a higher level of maturity. Tough times will create resilient disciples, and good times will create responsible disciples. We are living in a world where putting Jesus first looks nothing like it did in the first century. But thank the good Lord in heaven, we have this passage describing the preeminence of Christ, Jesus being first in everything, to know exactly what that looked like then, what it looks like now, and what it would look like forevermore. So in closing, worship team, you can come up. I present all this to you for the purpose of not standing in between you and God, but to make sure nothing else does. I stand here tonight to let you know that the risen Lord is the first in the cosmos, putting the reins of the universe in the hands of a man, the nail-scarred hands of the perfect God-man, powerfully reigning over the first creation that the risen Lord is first over the church being the head of the body, beautifully orchestrating the development and growth of it, personally ruling over the new creation, and that the risen Lord is first through Calvary, that those nail-scarred hands on that tree and that empty tomb placed us at the top of God's most loved list, practically reconciling sinful creation. Now I'll finish with this. This is what Timothy Keller says about the preeminency of Christ. He took our darkness so we could have the light. He took our curse so we could have the blessing. He climbed the tree of death so we could have the tree of life. He took the cosmic thirst so we could have the water of life. Just as nothing in creation remained untouched by the sin of Eden, is the same way nothing in creation will remain untouched by God's redemption after Christ's victory on the cross and the empty tomb. Christ is preeminent over all. All hail King Jesus from the cosmos to Calvary. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for such a rich passage, such a beautiful, detailed description of who your son is and that he is indeed first, no matter what we do, no matter what we say. So Father, help this not be just an argument that we present to those who have fallen into ancient heresies, but let it be a welcome mat let it be open arms. Let it be a hug. Let it be a looking in the, in the eyes and saying, Jesus loves you and he died for you so that you may have eternal life. And that eternal life starts whenever we utter the words, 
I believe. Father, thank you for such a beautifully orchestrated plan of redemption of whom we have become part. So Father, thank you for this time of worship through the reading and teaching of your word and through the singing of song. Father, I pray that that anyone who is experiencing the subtle taste of sin and death in their lives, in the lives of their family members, I pray, Lord, that they, that they feel the preeminency of Christ now. That those who need healing would get it, Lord. We long for the day that we are face-to-face with the risen Lord. And until that day comes, we plead and we utter, we proclaim and we live out the words, all hail King Jesus. We love you, Lord. Thank you. We ask all these things, praying, Lord, that they are answered according to your will in the mighty name of Jesus. And all the saints said, amen.